Hello and welcome to Astrology Hotline, the podcast where we answer all your burning breath charts and astrology questions. And uh, joining me today for this special Halloween episode is Tristan Taylor. Hello. Hello, everyone. Happy spooky season. I am very excited to have you on today. I guess it's been, been a few months. Yeah, it's been a while. I'm excited to be here. I don't even like and how many months it's been <laughs> since anything. I feel like time, it just keeps going by so fast and I don't like it. Yeah, it could slow down a bit. Scorpio season is a good time to contemplate the uh, persistent decay of your existence moment by moment. <laughs> I think that's a beautiful way of putting it. It's a great time to think about that. I Um, love persistent decay. Well, speaking of which, yeah, we got uh, we got ourselves Halloween coming up. It's uh, what three days? Three days to Halloween. Yeah, the day after it's on Monday, right? And we're recording on Friday. I remember what the days of the week are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Monday, three days. So now, now the pressure's on me to actually get this out before Halloween. So <laughs> I think it'll happen. I'm, I'm three sleeps. I believe in me. I believe in you. The power of the sun in Scorpio. Yeah. Because we have some Scorpio heavy charts to look at today. We do. So I think the sun in Scorpio is going to support you in getting this episode out because it is big PR for the sign of Scorpio. Yeah. And honestly, I think. I don't know. You said Aquarius is your favorite sun sign. Remember once? Favorite sun sign? Yeah, I would say so. I think Scorpios are my favorite sun sign and probably yeah. my favorite Mercury sign as well. That's a good Mercury sign. Yeah. Mercury and Scorpio is so cool. I just like, I can hear like yeah. noir detective film music in my head whenever I see <laughs> Mercury and Scorpio. Like everybody, I, I know so many Mercury and Scorpios too. It's honestly probably of all the planets to have in Scorpio, Mercury, I think, is my favorite. It's just it is. It's like deeply penetrative intellect, you know, and it, the the look they always have on their faces, too. It's just like they always look like they're like <laughs> staring you down. They're always doing the Larry David stare down. <laughs> well, I do have a Mercury and Scorpio chart prepared, so we've got your favorite, your favorite Mercury placement. Have we let listeners know what we're doing? Yeah, uh, no, we haven't. But I guess so they, you... they might be confused. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Sorry to anyone who's confused. We yes. should probably tell you. And so, I mean, I think that we are being in season by being really enigmatic. Oh, yeah. About this, like talking about charts we haven't shown and like what charts are they? Why are we talking about them? What is the purpose of this? Exactly. We're and... building the mystery. If you listen to our last uh, Halloween special, um, we're going to be doing a similar thing we did last time because that one went so well, uh, honestly. It was still one of my favorite episodes. But we are going to be taking a look at the birth charts of some fictional, uh, classically spooky characters. They're, they're both figures, I would say, from, from horror, specifically from the, the horror genre. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I guess we can get this kicked off with uh, our first. Spooky intro. Spooky intro. 
The air was filled with mirthful tittering and the sterile chimes of carousel music, as children reveled in the antics of clowns and the wiles of magicians, while their parents mingled and gossiped and nurtured the bonds which united them in prosperity. They had gathered on this day to celebrate the birth of a very special boy, Damien. Born June 6th in the year of our Lord, 1971, the adopted son of Robert Thorne, American ambassador to Great Britain, and his wife, Catherine Thorne. Damien sat atop a ceramic stallion, his jet black hair gently fluttering in the breeze as he gleefully rode in a continuous royal circuit on the carousel that was the centerpiece of his fifth birthday party, his mother's adoring gaze never more than one turn of the wheel away. A voice pierced through the joyous cacophony, drawing the attention of the attendees. The boy turned and waved to the smiling young woman calling to him from just outside the third floor window of the Thorns' mansion. Damien, look at me! I'm over here! Damien smiled back at her, amused to see Holly, his nanny, calling to him from such a silly location. His mother was less than amused, however, and instinctively plucked the boy from his ongoing procession. Damien, I love you! Catherine's apprehension grew as her vision adjusted to the distance, drawing into focus the figure of the young woman now standing precariously on the edge of the gabled roof. Look at me, Damien. The nanny declared reverently. It's all for you. And like a young girl jumping into a swimming pool, looking forward to impressing her parents, she leapt from the roof's edge. In an instant, a thick silence filled the void once occupied by sounds of music and merriment, only to be broken by the whip-like snap of a rope and the sharp crack of the neck which it was tied to. The once vibrant figure of the nanny slackened as she jerked to a stop in midair, and her limp body swung toward the house, shattering the second-story window below. Gasps and cries of horror erupted from the onlookers as Catherine shielded her son's eyes from the grotesque scene before them. As the party guests gawked at the nanny's suspended corpse in the stunned silence which followed, Young Damien gazed toward the tree line that marked the edge of the Thorn Estate, nestled securely in his mother's embrace. A large black dog leered back at him. Boy and beast locked lingering eyes upon each other, as if engaged in a conversation known only to them. Finally, the black-haired boy with eyes the color of ice, the corners of his mouth subtly bending into a sneering grimace which belied the innocence of his age, waved sharply at the mysterious creature and the hound disappeared into the woods to places and purposes unknown. Yeah, so I uh, chose for this um, Halloween special the birth chart of Damien Thorne, who, if you're not familiar with the, uh, the Omen movies, I feel like even if you haven't seen the the movie the omen movies or the first omen you probably haven't seen the second or third i only recently watched them because because i was doing this uh and they weren't that good to be honest with you but i loved the first one and yeah i feel like even if you haven't seen the omen you know who damien is uh, or you at least know the association with the name damien and the antichrist where it sounds like the the son of the devil 
which is kind of a shame. I feel like it ruined the name Damien a little bit. Or but it, it did also it. made the name Damien kind of badass. Yeah, yeah, I think it made it cooler. Yeah, because Damien's a pretty awesome name. Yeah, it's it's a good one. Yeah, well, Damien Thorne wasn't that hard of a choice, but it was convenient that uh, Damien Thorne has a birth time uh, all sort of built in because he is the son of the the devil. You know, we have to have some sixes in there, apparently. So it's in the canon that he was born on June 6th, sixth month, the sixth, Jesus, the sixth day of the sixth month uh, on the sixth hour. So six o'clock in the morning. However, depending on which movie you're watching, uh, you do get a different year. And I went with the original, uh, which actually is probably the best chart overall. The, the other two weren't bad, but you get different years for the other two movies, I guess. But um, you got to go with the original, the original movie, in my opinion, because it's the inception, I guess, of, of the idea of Damien Thorne. But um, yeah, if you want to follow along, I will post a copy of the chart in the show notes. But if you want to put it in your own app, cast a chart for june 6th 1971 six o'clock in the morning uh in rome italy and we get you get a chart with uh gemini rising at about 19 degrees the sun in gemini at 14 degrees and mercury ruling the ascendant uh in the 12th house in taurus at 27 degrees conjunct saturn at 28 degrees pretty tight i love that and it's uh, appropriate um they're hanging out with venus also at 22 degrees of taurus uh on the 12th and then uh you get the moon in scorpio at 11 degrees hanging out with jupiter at 29 degrees of scorpio and then uh you got mars in the ninth house uh conjunct the north node about 15 degrees of aquarius and uh, yeah, the rest of the placements I'll refer to as they become relevant. But uh, you got a lot of twelfth house, sixth house action, which um, it doesn't necessarily seem like at first. You, you would be maybe looking for something like more prominent, more powerful for somebody who's the son of the devil, right? Or who uh, ends up, I think, in the third movie, he's like the CEO of some big corporation that he inherited from his adopted father, I think, who was the president <laughs> of the United States. No big deal. And uh, Yeah, no big deal, right? But it, in a lot of ways, this it sort of makes sense. I mean, I guess you do get the sun on the ascendant, which is kind of uh, prominent, you know. Eminence visible. and glory. Yeah, yeah. I know where to start. There's so much... Um, I guess you can start with just the ascendant uh, being Gemini. You know, does Gemini reek of Antichrist to you? Crystal? Oh, it's it's such a great sign for the Antichrist <laughs> because Gemini is the, it's all about balancing polarities. If mm-hmm. you know, in a in a dualistic system and a dualistic sort of cosmology or mythology, you have you know the figure of supreme goodness who is Christ and he needs a counterpart right so gemini is all about like the light twin and the dark twin so jesus is the light twin and damien is the dark twin i hadn't thought about it like that 
but I, I think that's a really good take on it. I, I was thinking about it in terms of as a character. I mean, he's, you know, uh, capable of charming people. He's, he's clever, you know, he's, uh, actually has like a weird memory, um, which maybe might be more related to the moon, but he remembers like everything. Um, but he's also like able to play both sides uh, of uh, of the game a little bit. Like he's Very... basically infiltrates power structures in order to, you know, undermine them. Um, it just feels like a very satanic quality as well. Just mm-hmm. coming from uh, the Bible, the the tale of the temptation of Christ has always been one of my absolute favorite Bible stories. And one of Mm -hmm. the things that one of the many things about the story I find compelling is that Jesus and the devil essentially have an argument over scripture and the devil quotes scripture. So it's that like (laughs) Satan is able to use either side to his advantage he's able to kind of play for both teams in a way he's like i'm arguing yeah. from scripture so it looks like i'm arguing on behalf of god and that i i am doing something holy and right and he's able to kind of play that card mm-hmm. and that's i mean <clears throat> it's the type of argument that drives me nuts because i hate it because it's <laughs> bullshit oh yeah um, but it's also like how you win uh, is by turning other people's arguments like on their head or just sort of taking someone else's logic and applying it uh, like you're like r- r- turning people's systems of logic against them. Yes. And Gemini is is quite good at that. And Gemini also is, you know, not um, this is not a, a slight against Gemini people. There's there's great qualities to gemini but gemini is not an inherently moral sign uh at all like it's just not it just does not think about things in terms of, of morality it's just it's a much more uh it's just, it's just curious like it <clears throat> there's nothing like wrong or right in gemini no in fact it has to be both if anything because it, it's inherently looking at things from both sides so like it'll take maybe oh this is the idea of what's good okay well here's the idea of what's bad we have to hold both of these things like they have to sort of exist in in that dualistic relationship, like you said, which the sun occupying that space. I don't know. It's like you can just kind of project whichever version of yourself that people want to see. I don't know. It seems like a good uh, quality for the Antichrist to have because they do need to become worshipped in a sense. I think in the, uh, and you might know this a little more than me, but maybe in Revelations or I don't know. I feel like we've pieced together the story of the Antichrist or the idea of the Antichrist from a bunch of different sources in the Bible. I don't know if there's any one specific like book within the Bible. What's like the go-to? Is it Revelations? Honestly, it's not a subject that I ever really thought about a lot. So really, it's the most fun part of the Bible. <laughs> yeah, I, do, I honestly don't remember. And now I wish mm. that I had done some research on the biblical antichrist before this episode because that would have been fun but I have to table that we can do an entire episode just on the astrology of the antichrist yeah. <laughs> we'll try and predict they're coming <laughs> yeah well there's a lot of references to 
like the planets and stuff in Revelations, which I found interesting. But the movie and the fictional character Damien doesn't it's based loosely on like uh, Revelations and stuff. But like they created like a fictitious poem that was like supposed to be a quote from Revelations, but it wasn't interesting. Yeah. Anyway, I guess the next planet that I want to talk about, because it is closely related to the sun, which is very prominent, but it's also the only other, you know, of the visible traditional planets. It's the only other one of those that is actually in a house that can be seen by the ascendant, (laughs) which there's a lot going on um, behind the scenes, I guess, in the chart. But the only other planet is Mars uh, in Aquarius up in the ninth house, uh, which is, uh, the sun's actually applying to a, a really tight trine with it, um, which is kind of awesome. Cause, I don't know, just Mars and Aquarius uh, in the ninth house by itself with the North Node is just—it's like just like the most blasphemous, mm-hmm. uh, heretical combination you can really have. Uh, you probably pull that right out of like most traditional texts. Uh, especially like Vedic texts, uh, and it would just be like, you know, North Node in the ninth, which we both have that, right? It's, it, I mean, it's skeptical of religion, you could say, and and just wants to do its own thing, maybe with um, with religion. But you add Mars there, and it's just like very heretical, very blasphemous. That's that's the interpretation I'm most familiar with for malefics in the ninth house is that the person will be <laughs> a blasphemer. Yeah, I guess I mean the North Node's technically a malefic, right? Yeah, but I'm I'm not. Um, what's the opposite of blasphemous? Pious, I guess. Pious. Well, yeah, I've never been a, a terribly pious individual, but um, is actually a fun quote. I think I have here. This word's relevant. I suppose I have a. I will pull this out of uh, Vedius Valens. I'll just read it real quick. So in conjunction, which uh, is referring to the ninth house, uh, if malefics in general are in conjunction with the ninth house and rule the previously mentioned places, that would be the ascendant in fortune, which they don't rule the ascendant, but they rule uh, the lot of fortune for Damien Thorne. It's hanging out with the moon and Scorpio there. Or they are an aspect from the right with the lot of fortune, which... Uh, Mars is square with a lot of fortune, which I think that it's supposed to be on the right side, but you get some of that. Uh, you get a little bit of both. Um, the native will be a tyrant. He will found some cities. He will sack others. He will pillage many people most wickedly. If a lot of diamond or fortune happens to be in the eighth place of the bad diamond, but the house rulers of the lot and the ascendant are in this place of the god, uh, the native will be involved in very many evils in travel and will lose whatever he has gained, or he will take refuge in temples because of his desirous pains. And I know one of those last parts were true, but anyway, um, fun. I love it. You you have uh, Damien uh, meeting the criteria for several of those. He didn't, I don't think he built any cities though, but he was definitely a a destroyer. Um, And actually I have another general from uh, from Paul, Paul Deepika uh, is a Vedic astrologer who said that uh, Mars in the ninth house 
makes the native um, beloved by the king or, or valued by the king, but murderous and spiteful. Well, the you said that you said that at some point, like he's the son of the president, so that could be the, uh-huh. the king, um, yeah. and also that he was like a corporate CEO in one of the mm-hmm. movies, which like maybe this is a bit of a stretch, but I feel like there's a bit of similarity between the concept of a city and the concept of a corporation, where it's this an organization yeah. an organizational structure that binds a group of people into a, a unity of some kind and is yeah. headed by you know somebody who has executive authority um so mm, being a builder that's... and destroyer of cities maybe some of his activity in the corporate world could be uh relevant to that kind of symbolism yeah I mean, of course, that may actually makes a lot of sense. Then thinking about it, it, the ninth house is like a place of that kind of thing. Like yeah. cities, it makes sense to me that you would like kind of look to the ninth house for something like a city, something like what you just described, the, a unifying sort of umbrella uh, of a thing, like a corporation or a city or just the idea of a thing that unites people that brings people together well, it's temples um, too right in the ninth house which is another mm-hmm. thing that's you know organized centralized group of people that are united mm-hmm. by some common bond into some yeah. you know they all become one when they are participating in this organization and there's somebody at the top with executive power yeah absolutely which i mean that's what he's doing and he i mean he's operating within those structures but also sort of tearing tearing them down i don't know the gemini idea is to (laughs) just being (laughs) and i mean a little aquarius too of being sort of like aquarius lives in that sort of boundary between the status quo and on the outside like it's sort of the placement of the outsider but it's also very much in relationship to the status quo it's it's I feel like it's sort of an open question whether or not an Aquarius placement is going to be building a society or tearing it down or tearing it down and building something new. But it's that whole process of tearing and building down of social structures that Aquarius is concerned with and who's on the inside and who's on the outside Mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. When it's like Mars is uh, in the superior position of the trine. So the sun is sort of doing the uh, the Gemini thing of like kind of playing both sides and creating like a charming facade, we'll say, uh, and engaging in morally dubious activities, which, you know, Gemini can do, um, but sort of at the will of Mars uh, to some degree, where Mars is sort of setting the parameters of the relationship and Mars's agenda is to, well, destroy the the world i guess but also to um unite humanity i guess against god so it's like anti-god uh which you think mars in the ninth house in the house of god like especially mars in aquarius it's so it's so perfect (laughs) it's just too perfect this this chart is like it is a gold mine um i know so i love that the trine is from the ninth house to the first so and it because it's it's a funny thing about I mean I I hesitate sometimes to call it mythology but it's like 
my own religious traditions, I refer to their stories as mythology, even though I believe they are sacred. So I'm just going to go ahead and say Christian <laughs> mythology. I'm sorry if anyone's offended by that. I, that's, I, <laughs> I think I just say that by default. But now. like in in Christian mythology, the interesting thing is that like if if you are a Satanist, you are working within that mythology and cosmology of Christianity because these these figures mm-hmm. are religious figures. Yeah. They're figures of religious significance within that worldview and set of stories. So mm-hmm. even though he's like is hell bent on destroying what Christianity stands for, um, he is still like part of that worldview. He's part of that mythos and it's benefiting him. Like it's sort of his purpose mm-hmm. is wrapped up in that whole mythos. So like the stuff that's in the ninth house is actually kind of weirdly, it's a weird relationship where it's like supporting his mission. If people just didn't care, then there would be no mission. If people, if, if religion didn't matter, you know, he would have nothing, nothing ninth house. Like he's still participating in the ninth house, I guess is what I'm saying. And that is still sort of his purpose. And ultimately if he gets what he wants, which is to unite people to oppose God, maybe he's starting a new religious movement within that same mythology, in which case he would then become like the leader of the ninth house stuff. That's sort of mm-hmm. like he's he's trying to take over the ninth house. Yeah. So he kind of, he needs the ninth house mm-hmm. to, to do what he's doing. Well, yeah, I mean, he's uh, exists within the Christian mythical structure. He, he knows comes relevant with other parts of the chart, but he like, in the second movie like figures out like he has a moment where he's like holy shit i'm the son of the devil like why me like he he's like not super pleased about it he's kind of a lot like, of pressure oh, like it's a lot of pressure yeah. and like you know he's evil like and granted he's had some evil tendencies and stuff and he doesn't have too hard of a time accepting it and he sort of takes that role eventually but he does have a period where he's not necessarily loving the fate yeah but uh you know, by the third movie, I think a big part of it is him basically murdering everybody born on this specific day, uh, all the children born on the specific day, because that's the day that the the second what Christ is supposed to be born or the whatever the. Oh, so they're sort of yeah. they're echoing the the biblical tales of like uh, the flight out of Egypt, you know, the night of Passover and also the King Herod in the gospels who hears that a messiah will be born and slaughters all the firstborn children so that's a motif that repeats in both the hebrew bible and then again in the new testament of this like king who thinks someone's gonna usurp him or whatever it makes sense i mean i mean the the son i guess is it's the king right um yeah he wants to be the king that's rising well the the sun rising too the first thing that came to mind for me when I looked at this chart and saw that he was born at sunrise was the literal meaning of the name Lucifer, which is like mm-hmm. light, mm. light bringer. And, you know, the ah, yeah. Lucifer is, is referred to as the morning star. It's sort of like the light that's rising up over the horizon. Yeah. Well, and that, <laughs> well, I'll finish with Mars real quick, but that becomes relevant because, um, with Venus, I think, but uh, Mars also, if you're using the Chaldean um, bound system, 
uh, Mars would be in its own bound. You know, I've been trying to figure out what the hell to do with, with the bounds <laughs> uh, and which system of bounds to use. I've been experimenting with the Chaldean one a little bit, but um, it sort of indicates that like Mars is has a place within some sort of structure. At least that's how like I tend to conceive what dignity is. It's like it has a place within like a pre-established framework. That's a really good, concise way of explaining dignity. I'm going to steal that from you. That's great. <laughs> well, even like the bounds too, and the way they describe them in like uh, a lot of ancient texts is like it's not necessarily like a great thing. Like for a malefic to be in its own bounds, it's like oh, it has like the power to like fuck shit up. There. Hell yeah. So it's kind of like existing. It has like a power within has a role maybe within a structure. And we'll say within Christianity, it's just the the antithetical role. Yes. It's the role of tearing it all down. But I guess is maybe uh, a big theme in the movies, which they're not super deep, but he kind of figures out like, oh, the second coming is coming. And I'm actually kind of boned here uh but i need to fight my my fate right like he's sort of destined to lose to be defeated by god right but he uh sort of fighting that which you get uh it's where it starts to make sense maybe in like where everything is cadent basically it makes sense on multiple levels but one is like where he is um sort of fighting a losing battle i guess with fate in a sense but also he is working against the system as a whole like the 12th house so he's mercury ruling his ascendant from the 12th house which ruling the 12th like actually see it a lot with um uh kings uh as i've been studying a lot of like kings and royal charts and stuff it's like you get a lot of ruler in the 12th which sort of indicates like oh somebody who doesn't maybe have like the, the, there's sort of a removal of agency over the direction of things to some degree yeah and like when well, we got a dude who's born into uh, he has to be the he's the son of the devil and, you know, wasn't really up to him. So he sort of swept up in that fate. I, I think that's a really good analysis. I uh, I was really excited when I saw that his ascendant ruler was in the 12th and also that it was so closely conjunct Saturn and like a really nice applying <laughs> conjunction within one degree. Oh, yeah. Um, both for the reasons that you've mentioned that like the 12th, the 12th house and Saturn both relate to issues of binding and restriction and also a fate and like fate is a force that restricts and binds us and that we don't have agency over. And we run into situations in the 12th house where we don't have agency and we feel like we're the victims of fate or we're in some way bound. Um, and mm-hmm. we can't sort of freely act, um, which is where, you know, the sort of association with imprisonment comes from. And there is like, I mean, if you were born into a position like a king or an antichrist or any position like that, like if, you know, if you really wanted to take up the saxophone and that was your passion and that's what you really wanted to pursue, well, that's too bad because your destiny has been laid out for you and you have a political role to play and that is what's going to define your life whether you like it or not like Mm -hmm. you don't really get a choice about defining your own life yeah so i can i I feel like yeah a a good ruler uh has to put everybody else ahead of themselves so there's like to be a good ruler you kind of need to be a little 12th housey because you need to Mm -hmm. be able to put yourself last so 
Not that the Antichrist is a good ruler by the sounds yeah, of it. He's a pretty bad dude yeah. in, in these movies. <laughs> but uh, I also think it's interesting that um, if you were to consider all of the planets as actors in a play and you were going to cast anyone as a villain, it's going to be one of the malefics and often like Saturn, like so many bad guys in like, when I think of Disney bad guys, yeah. I'm just like, you have Saturn written all over you. Like, it's it's not that Saturn is a bad planet, but he's constantly cast into the role of villain. And you do sometimes see that symbolism playing out in charts where like if there are strong Saturn signatures, it's like you sometimes have to play the role of the villain mm-hmm. or that that archetype has some sort of importance in your life. And he is he is yeah. the he's the anti-hero like villain. Uh, he's the ultimate uh, baddie. <laughs> Absolutely. That is perfect, actually. And well, Saturn also rules the the ninth house, too. So oh, that's it's like perfect. Tied it's got to the... the malefic in it and it's ruled by yeah. the malefic. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so good. <laughs> um, And then Saturn also rules the eighth house, too. So like <sighs> bringing in some um, some death, right, maybe or some. Oh, uh, yeah. Connection to unseen forces, perhaps. Right. And. He um, has a way of uh, people just sort of die around Damien Thorne quite a bit. <laughs> uh, well, that's it, it, basically it. Uh, is people are just constantly dying around Damien Thorne. He, Thorne, he doesn't actually kill very many people uh, personally. Like this, uh, a lot of the people that um, get killed are killed by animals. Uh, well, Paris also rules large animals. And is it like, uh-huh. aren't there a lot of I feel like I've definitely read this in traditional texts where there will be some sort of, you know, challenging 12th house placement and the native will be devoured by dogs. It's sort of like you're going to die a bad death kind of thing. Like you don't get a proper burial. You're going to get eaten by wild dogs or you're just as a living person going to get torn apart by wild dogs. I might be making this up, but I feel like this is an association that I have seen before between the 12th and just being devoured by wild animals in one way or another. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, uh, was it, if the ruler of the 12th is in the first and it's a malefic devoured by dogs. There you go. Yeah. Except in his case, it's Which... everyone around him getting devoured. Yeah. Oh yeah. And in fact, he has dogs. Um, it's like one of the first scenes of the movie dogs just, uh, will attack people for him. Uh, crows will attack people for him or on his behalf. Uh, he also kind of has like some telekinetic abilities, even which uh, I was asking Joji actually is like, do you know any um, references to telekinesis by any ancient astrologers? And couldn't, couldn't find any, <clears throat> but um, 12th house could be, you know, just like things sort of having unconscious kind of powers, maybe. Well, and Mercury is also the ascendant too, just, yeah, you know, not oh, not yeah. that everybody with Gemini rising is going to have telekinesis oh, yeah. or whatever, but no. it's just like <laughs> yeah. it's I, I feel like Gemini would love to have. Yes, telekinesis. that'd be a, a super fun. It's power a to very have. mercurial type of supernatural power. Yeah. It's very appropriate to the symbolism. Mm-hmm. But also the 12th house is the house of enemies, right? Or the hidden enemies. And uh in a sense, he is a hidden hidden enemy. Right? Uh, he he's actually and his first uh, house. That's like he is that 
hidden enemy for everybody. Yeah. But if you're the hidden enemy, then you're basically surrounded by enemies. Oh, yeah. You know? But like his mother was actually a jackal. Okay. Which I don't understand how that worked, but he was born to a jackal. And uh, basically the politician that adopted him, um, his baby was murdered basically and then kind of replaced with with uh, Damien. Well, no, they, he knew that his baby died. He didn't know that it was murdered, but then basically he adopted Damien. But then, you know, in the first movie, his parents die uh, and he gets stopped by the president. Of course. <laughs> Yeah, so just everybody around him constantly dying. But um, uh, that last like Deccan of Taurus too also has to do with like the um, like misfortune sort of uh, or sort of turns of fate will undo things, famine and pestilence and stuff are just having like a bad crop. Usually, people with planets there will be protecting themselves against misfortune a lot, or often very good at that, but the idea of like the bringer of destruction to earth and mankind in general, or even just like the idea of like pestilence or like being the thing that um, is the, the, the force for misfortune. Right. Uh, I don't know. There's something about that, uh, that packed third decan of Taurus that just makes a lot of sense to me in ways that I'm like struggling to articulate. That's that, that last decan of Taurus. Taurus is ruled by Saturn in the Chaldean e, yeah. uh, Deccan system, right? So there's, it's funny because... In both systems. Oh, that's right. Um, mm-hmm. So in any in any system that the last 10 degrees of Taurus is ruled by Saturn. So it's the least kind of soft, fluffy, floral part of Taurus. Mm-hmm. It's the, part, it's the yeah. part of Taurus where shit gets real. Well, it's, yeah, the part of Taurus where all the longstanding fixed, you know, permanent earth that you've established gets uh, shit thrown at it. And gets tested. Gets gets tested. Yeah. And in a way, he's he is the uh, the test in some way. Or <laughs> I don't know. He is like a big gold plague in a sense, but he's like a, a theological plague. Like he's there to... Uh, to basically take over, I think the idea was that people were supposed to think that the Antichrist was like a messiah. And that's how, you know, they get duped. They they get tricked by um right. by the false messiah, the Antichrist, and then they follow him into hell. Well, and Mercury has to do with trickery and Saturn has to do with deception. That's why I was just I was reading the first uh I guess you call it chapter in the Corpus Hermeticum today. And there's this whole section about uh, the ascension through the planetary spheres and the kinds of things that you release or deactivate at each sphere. And with the translation that I have, let me just open it up. So I make sure that I get it right. Cause I think that Mm -hmm. the way it's translated in the translation I have is that in the sphere of Mercury, um, trickery becomes inactive and then in the sphere of saturn it is falsehood the falsehood which waits in ambush is the thing that you sort of Mm. purify yourself of 
So there's ah. that association between Mercury and trickery and Saturn and falsehood. Nice. And then Venus also too. It's a uh, well, in, in this case, it's a morning star. But uh, what is um? There's a lot of associations with Satan and Venus. I'm a little distracted because I have to pee. But <laughs> <laughs> was uh, Lucifer means morning star, right? Um, or is it Lightbringer? You were just saying that, but uh, I think it's Lightbringer. But he's associated with the morning star. Let me, yeah. Let me look this up. No, I don't want the TV series. Give me the eto- give me the <laughs> etymology of his name. Um, the Greek Greek Septuagint reads it as morning star or shining one. Mm. Lucifer yeah. is one of various figures in folklore associated with the planet Venus, and then the yes. name was yeah. absorbed into Christianity as a name for the devil. Um, yeah, in the Latin Vulgate, I think they use it's Lucifer is a Latin word, which means the morning star, the planet Venus, or as an adjective, light bringing. Mm. So I yeah. guess it has both both meanings of light bringer and morning star. Venus with uh, Mercury. I mean, I guess it, Venus would be the d- dispositor, uh, the final dispositor for the ruler of the first. But it's also like providing uh, Mercury and Saturn with substantial resources, maybe to uh, take over the world or to to rain down destruction uh, on the earth. It you know he was um, adopted by the president, inherited a mega corporation. Yes, this is a sort of modern super rich parents, <laughs> modern king. I'm looking at. I am just looking at the Antichrist article on Wikipedia because I can. And mm. there's a piece of art which, you know, depicts the Antichrist as a king. So apparently it is in uh, the epistles of John. That is where the term appears ah. in the Bible. It doesn't appear in the book of Revelations. Um, okay. Oh. The, yeah, it's the so letters of John, where all this stuff comes from which is probably why I wasn't super familiar with it. I mean, it's just not a thing I really thought about. I, I taught Sunday school, so I was not doing lessons about the antichrist as a general yeah. rule. Probably, and I don't, good. I don't know how often those passages came up in the lectionary, which is what I taught from. So it's like, I'm really familiar with stuff that's in the Anglican lectionary. Didn't hear a lot yeah. of sermons about the antichrist as a progressive Anglican. So it just didn't really come up. For me. <laughs> and you feel like that's the part of, not the part, but one of the parts of maybe Christianity. You get to the people that are really, really into like the Antichrist yeah. and stuff. Uh, that's where you start to get into some problematic territory. Uh, it comes with a lot. Um, Good rule of thumb. It's a little more the the fire and brimstone, I guess, angle on on Christianity. But um, yeah, we could talk about this chart forever. I wanted to. There's a few things that. I definitely wanted to get to before we move on to uh, your chart, but uh, I had one more little Valens quote, which is rather fun. Um, just about Saturn, Venus, and Mercury together, uh, which they are for, for Damien Thorne. So Saturn, Venus, and Mercury make intelligent, clever individuals, shrewd and designing in their business enterprises. These men, however, are unsteady. Frozen in their first enterprises, they become covetous of others' goods, accomplices in many crimes, seekers of curious lore, flexible, healing, enjoying 
newness, change, and travel. Uh, if under these conditions the configuration is afflicted, or if Mars is an aspect from Uh-oh. the right, yep, these men fall into disturbances and trials because of poisonings of females, or because of legacies, or they suffer a loss of livelihood, or an an afflicting accusation after being wronged by women. In general, they will be insecure and pained with respect to women, children, and slaves. So <laughs> there's a lot of lever just layers to this one and how it fits. Uh, he was uh, constantly trying to, uh, people were trying to kill him all the time. Um, in the first movie, his parents, father specifically, tried to kill him unsuccessfully. Uh, I don't think he was ever poisoned um, specifically, but I like that one of the disturbances or trials has to do with legacies, um, which has to do with like him being wrapped up in this battle between good and evil, basically. But uh, he didn't necessarily suffer a loss of livelihood per se, but he was uh, he did end up getting killed at the end of the third movie by, uh, well, first a reporter who he had assaulted set her son on him and he was trying to co-opt the son basically make him a follower and she basically turned the son against him and tried to uh, the son tried to kill him uh, failed he kills the son uh, but then the woman ends up murdering him stabbing him with these uh, fancy daggers these really old specific daggers the only daggers that can kill him Um, so he ends up being undone by uh, a woman and a child and yeah women and children pretty literal taken down <laughs> yeah that's um way to go balance fun yeah way to go balance and then uh what do we just want to say but uh they are all opposing jupiter in scorpio uh saturn pretty tightly which could say a bit on that but i was thinking mainly for jupiter and scorpio was making me think of how um uh well he he definitely has uh friends in low places you could say or like his like sort of supporters definitely come from uh, not necessarily just like the criminal underworld but like the um the theological underworld (laughs) like the the uh demons literal demons and the moon too actually so he uh in the second movie um is definitely struggling with some um abandonment issues or, or just some some deep feelings of uh, being unloved and the source of a lot of rage right that seems to go beyond just uh him being the son of, of the devil uh i remember actually one of the pop astrology things i first read about the moon in scorpio was this ability to um psychic powers but also like to just sort of make things happen by thinking about them, or feeling them, which is a quality that's uh, often assigned to Scorpio planets in Scorpio. And, uh, and there means something to that. Right. It's also just like a, an intense moon, right? It's also, it's a almost full moon. So just, you know, we're thinking maybe Damien Thorne is bringing a lot of emotional intensity to, to the table. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Mother, his mother being a literal jackal is also pretty cool for the moon and Scorpio. <laughs> yeah. it, and it's in the sixth house too. I oh yeah, like I yeah, like literally being the child of an animal, and animals are in the mm-hmm. sixth house, and the moon is 
There's a lot the going mother. on with animals. That's pretty cool. I like, I don't know. I, I don't know if this is part of the symbolism of Omen because I haven't seen it. But when I think of jackals, I think of Anubis, who is a god associated with death. So I don't know if they're intentionally sort of linking the jackal mm. with death. Because that would be like having be like the moon in Scorpio and having like yeah. this sort of uh, death animal as your mother. Mm-hmm. That's that's pretty badass. <laughs> when he basically ends up killing his own mother. Well, he the mother died in childbirth, but the mother was actually a jackal. Uh, but the um, and he has jackal DNA apparently. Interesting revealed in the second one, which is kind of weird. But uh, in the first movie. Um, his adopted mother at least I don't think he kills her in that scene but it's the um, the tricycle scene where he's like riding around on his tricycle like looking really creepy (laughs) and basically rides his tricycle up behind his mom kind of knocks her over the ledge of the this like upper railing of their big mansion and she like falls over the rail and is like sort of grasping onto it and then he's just kind of like looking at her like oh hmm and she's like, Damien. <gasps> and I think she's pregnant. She doesn't die in that part, but she's pregnant with like a, a rival potentially. Oh. So uh, he just kind of sits there and watches her fall and she falls and the baby dies. And I think he, she, was it a dog that ends up killing her? But like one of his dogs that he's like telekinetically linked to. I don't know. It's it's pretty um pretty Moon and Scorpio stuff. It sounds like just right regular normal regular Scorpio old stuff. Yeah, other issues with with the Moon and Scorpio. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. Like it's Halloween, folks. It's gonna get <laughs> yeah. dark. Oh yeah. I I always feel like I need a disclaimer for these <laughs> kinds of episodes where we're like looking at the charts of very extreme fictional characters if you have any of these placements yeah. in your chart it probably doesn't mean you're the antichrist <laughs> and your relationship with your mom is hopefully just fine i, I think i meant to say something like, earlier <laughs> maybe your mom just really likes spooky ghost stories yeah. and told them to you a lot when you were growing up and that's why you have the moon scorpio mm-hmm. but if you are the antichrist and you have the moon in scorpio it's probably going to look a little yeah, bit Yeah, you're probably going to have just just look at the just watch the movie. <laughs> it's just watch the movie. You've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. Uh that face he makes uh, in the first one. Such a creepy little kid. But yeah, if it makes anybody feel better if they feel called out by having some similar placements, uh this chart is um I have a lot of, of placements in common with the antichrist apparently. Uh and yet I oh, yeah. you know, I'm pretty sure I'm not the Antichrist. Actually, Mark Wahlberg, though, is a very close time twin of, of Damien Thorne. Oh, he's yeah. a good candidate. He was born just the day before. Though. Well, just <laughs> anyway, shall we shall we move on to the next chart? Yes. Can you? Yeah, real quick before we start your chart, Tristan, just wanted to say real quick, if uh, you're enjoying this special Halloween episode of Astrology Hotline. If you're a fan of the podcast, please help us out and, you know, share the podcast with a friend, post it on your social media account, you know, just just let people know, hey, this show is awesome. Uh, 
because we are competing with, I think, I can't remember the statistic now, is either 6 million or 60 million podcasts in the world. And it's a lot of competition. So, you know, as great as this podcast is, um, we can always use a little bit of help, help the podcast grow, do a little post. Yeah, would you like to uh, grace us with the amazing work you did on um, the chart of, of your particular figure, Tristan? <laughs> I would love to. <laughs> All right, here goes. We got the spooky intro. Tormented by grief over the loss of his wife and unborn child, a young man wanders the waterfront of New Orleans in a drunken haze. The world can no longer offer him any pleasure, and he longs to be relieved of his bitter life. He is tracked by an unseen presence in the night, drawn to his despair like a vulture to dead flesh. The presence emerges from the shadows and seizes the young man, piercing him with pointed, carnivorous teeth. Drained of blood almost to the point of death, the young man is offered a choice to die or to walk the immortal path of the vampire. So I, I realized that my intro in a way was kind of introducing the wrong vampire. In a way, it's more of an introduction to Louis than to the chart of actually going to look at who is Lestat de Lianco uh, from the Anne Rice Vampire Chronicles. I think that is how we are introduced we are, to Lestat though in the movie at least. We are introduced to Lestat through the eyes of Louis. Um, so I'm kind of telling Louis's story in the intro where um, you know the Vampire Chronicles start off with interview with the vampire and you know you have this heartbroken man uh, who is turned into a vampire by the charming immortal Lestat and Lestat is a very popular character in the Vampire Chronicles I full disclosure I read Interview with the Vampire when I was in high school which was many eons ago now and I have watched the movie twice and I have not read any of the other Vampire Chronicles books so I have familiarize myself with Lestat's Wikipedia article and rewatched Interview with the Vampire. Um, so I'm not like, I'm not coming to this as like a super knowledgeable fan. So Anne Rice fans uh, listening to this, please feel free to send us notes if you notice anything interesting in this chart. I really just wanted to do the chart of a vampire. I just, I am a huge Gothic horror fan, a huge Victorian horror fan love vampires um and we have a canonical birth date and location for uh Lestat so I will we don't have a birth time for him um so we're working without a birth time although I have a couple of ideas I haven't gone into a whole lengthy rectification process with his chart which I think if if you really studied the books, there would probably be a number of significant events with dates or at the very least years that you could use to try and, and arrive at a birth time. But uh, 
If you want to look at his chart, we'll have it in the show notes. Or if you're just typing into astrology software right now, uh, he was born on November 7th in the year 1760. And he was born in central France in the Auvergne region. So I just put in, I hope I'm pronouncing it right. It's Leon, right? L-Y-O-N. It's not pronounced Leon. Leon or yeah. Leon, yeah. I'm very sorry to anyone from France. The best we can do. Yeah, we're we're not the best at (laughs) I'm so sorry. (laughs) Anyway. I'm not. So we've got we've got a birth chart with the sun in Scorpio at 15 degrees because of course, and Anne Rice, I believe had, has Mercury, Mercury and Venus, Venus in yeah. Scorpio. And of course she gave her, you know, one of her most popular and uh, iconic vampire characters, the sun in Scorpio, because why wouldn't you I wonder so um, much if like they, I don't know. I assume that like everybody who's, making movies or making these characters like is just into astrology and like looks up the chart for the character but like i sometimes it's so uncanny aren't like most likely but i would really like to know if they if they are i feel like there might have been some intention in making him a a scorpio son because really that's it's pretty common knowledge if you were born in probably a scorpio son yeah i would i would assume that but if you know a little bit, even about pop astrology, you know, if you're going to pick any sign for vampirism, it's probably yeah. Scorpio. So, you know, he was he was born just after the Halloween season, mm-hmm. just perfect spooky time uh, of year. Scorpio. Um, 15 degrees of Scorpio. And then just to make it even better, he not only has the sun at 15 degrees of Scorpio, but he has the moon in Scorpio, very close mm-hmm. to it. So since we don't have a birth time, we can't be sure of the exact degree of the moon. But he was born on the day of the dark moon. Yes. Which is metal oh, as hell. Yeah. It's like a... It's yeah. a... Like the fall, like the darkest moon, like already, like topically, maybe. Um, it's the most complicated moon, but like going into the dark. It's like basically it's dying uh, in a sense. The moon itself it, it symbolically is going into the dark even though it's going into the light um it's kind of weird it is sort of like the death of the moon well it's it's sort of like i mean the way i think of the dark moon is um the moon is being burned up or consumed by the sun so there are metaphors of both light and darkness but in the in this case the light is harmful it's not like you Mm -hmm. know healing heavenly light it is a furnace that the moon is diving into and then must emerge from the other side and while this is happening the moon is invisible to us and goes dark well this is a person Um, who literally died and was reborn as a vampire it's Mm -hmm. perfect (laughs) it really is yeah it's just so perfect um yeah dark dark moon in scorpio um so he was probably born just as the moon was diving into the sun or just as the moon was emerging yeah. from the sun. In that middle uh and if you middle decan of, of Scorpio. <clears throat> yeah. If you were to go outside uh on the night of his birthday, you would not see the moon at all, not even a tiny sliver. Um, and then he also has Mercury in Scorpio. So we've got a, a pileup of 
critters <laughs> hanging out in Scorpio in his chart, which seems certainly very fitting. Um, and then we've got Venus and Mars both in Sagittarius and in the South Node. Jupiter in Aquarius. Yes, in the South. So those those are some some really cool things about his chart I want to get into are the that Venus South Node conjunction is pretty cool. <laughs> Um, and also very appropriate. Oh yeah. Uh, and he's got Jupiter in Aquarius and Saturn in Pisces, <laughs> which um, is also really great too. Uh, so much. I mean, there's this chart. It's great. Um, which uh, when you brought up Lestat, I sorry, I'm cutting you off, aren't I? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Let go, me take go over for your it, chart for, for you. No. Uh, <laughs> Um, when you brought up Lestat, I got really excited because uh, I looked up the chart and I was like, oh, my God. Um, and I had only watched the movie, but then I found that uh, on YouTube, there's a free audio book of the, the Anne Rice book, uh, The Vampire Lestat, uh, which I have not finished yet. I'm about maybe like halfway through because it's not bad. And I guess that does make me technically a little more educated on Lestat now than, than Tristan but yes. <laughs> I'm still by no means an expert. Um, but the, it just makes all the more sense the more I, I've learned about the character. But please go on. Well, the, I mean, one, one fun little detail that I picked up on right away um, with the moon in Scorpio, obviously the moon is associated with the mother. Scorpio is associated with death and rebirth and decay and darkness and all that kind of wonderful stuff. Yeah. All that spooky stuff. And uh, Lestat's very first vampire companion, Mm -hmm. which is to say the very first person that he, with his vampiric power, turned into a vampire was his own mother. So this is the most uh, interesting and fitting uh story for a scorpio moon that he would literally turn his own mother into a vampire (laughs) that relationship also gets rather icky and complicated too (laughs) it's it's a little bit weird uh certainly the 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 bonds that that tie those those two together are are that there's deep complicated waters uh there yeah yeah my understanding is that there's some a uh, definite respect uh, and attachment on the part of Lestat for his mother, but it is far from a perfect. Yeah, it's also a little relationship. Seems to be bordering. I haven't finished it yet, but a little, little, in, uh, little sexy too. You know, <laughs> it really doesn't surprise me because <laughs> yeah. I mean that's another another thing that comes up. I think even in just pop astrology with. The sign of Scorpio is taboos and breaking taboos. Oh, yes. Yeah. And I mean, Anne Race's writing certainly in the Vampire Chronicles area did a lot of exploring um, social and moral taboos through stories of vampires, which is very Scorpionic. Well, it almost kind of makes sense in the, I don't know, like it, uh, like in their minds, like, well, we're not really we're dead now. Like we're not humans. We're like, we're this new version of ourselves. We're not necessarily like we're these new people uh, or these new creatures. We're, we're not, you know, whatever the old relationship was, that was 
kind of something else, but it obviously carries into it. But like they're you you nailed it. I mean, yeah, it's all that they're totally um, they're just transgressors of of nature, I guess, <laughs> which I guess you could in theory get to with uh, maybe the moon and Scorpio or just Scorpio in general. Yeah, it's uh, what was I going to say? Sort of like once you become a vampire, human standards of morality no longer apply to you yeah. because you are no longer human and you now adhere you to go. a different moral code. And vampires certainly do have a moral code in Anne Rice's universe, um, which Lestat famously does not always adhere to. He's very much a rebel and a transgressor in general, mm-hmm. um, which was something that you know i was i was trying to dig into with his chart and i think having a birth time would really help but one thing that does kind of stick out to me is that uh he has mars in sagittarius Mm -hmm. overcoming saturn uh in pisces and it's a fairly close aspect it's separating but you know it's still in the overcoming position where mars has power to maltreat saturn and I mean, I couldn't help thinking of, you know, the Saturn is um, one of Saturn's responsibilities is it's sort of it's the container for our relationship with rules and um, laws, whether they be sort of social laws that we feel limit us um, or, you know, physical laws that limit us in some way. In this case, I think it's the social laws that are relevant. And uh, Lestat is nicknamed the Brat Prince by other vampires because he is notoriously rebellious and Mm -hmm. marches to the beat of his own drummer. Um, He seeks out a mentor, but also drives his mentor crazy by constantly breaking uh, the rules and and, uh, guidelines that his mentor gives him, Um, which, you know, I I think there's a little bit of... uh, common ground between Jupiter and Saturn and that they represent sort of social codes and also like older people and teachers. And uh, he does have Saturn in a Jupiterian sign in Pisces. So I I can't help thinking maybe that Saturn in Pisces kind of represents his mentors in a way, like the people, the older, more experienced vampires who are trying to guide him. And that Mars is sort of... uh, (laughs) acting rebellious and reckless and destructive. So like one thing, you know, his, his mentor instructs him that you never reveal your nature to mortals. Like you don't, you don't just go around telling people that you're a vampire and Lestat floats that. And he also, you know, he starts a rock band and he sings in his lyrics like he Mm. shares sort of vampire secrets of the vampire world in his lyrics in this very public facing role so he's transgressing these moral values um and sort of also bringing the secrets of vampire society out into the world of mortals yeah that's uh i like that takes you i was thinking about um Whenever I think of Saturn and Pisces, I always think of the, just the the term crestfallen, which uh, there's just something about like there's something like Pisces is he has this like very romantic, um, idealistic quality 
It's like very kind of ethereal and dreamy and like, you know, like the most beautiful transcendent sorts of like concepts and experiences that we can think of. Uh, Those are like Piscean kind of experiences, but Saturn like brings like the heavy weight of reality to it. Mm -hmm. There's like a tragic beauty, I think, to Saturn and Pisces. There's also sort of like the almost like falling in love with a tragedy or like a, I don't know, wanting something you can't have, essentially. Uh, something that is inherently unreachable or unobtainable. That's sorrow of longing. Yeah. Yes. Like longing is a good word for deeply longing Saturn and Pisces, mm-hmm. which I think does fit. Um, he there's a lot of symbolism in his chart that is very much connected to desire, to romantic desire. Um, oh, yeah. He is a very uh, passionate person who takes many lovers and has very uh, intense, entangled relationships. Um, and he his story kind of starts like his the story of him becoming a vampire starts. Um, Yes, he has a a friend and lover Mm -hmm. named Nicholas, and he has a dream. Lestat has a dream of becoming an actor. Uh, So he and Nicholas go to Paris, uh, hoping that Lestat can start his career there. Um, And that is when Lestat is transformed into a vampire. Um, And he ends up like he and Nicholas continue their relationship, I guess. And he decides to turn Nicholas yeah. into a vampire as well. That's where I'm at in the story. It's <laughs> um, okay, you can spoil it though. Oh yeah, I'm sorry, I'm spoiling no, no. it. No, it's fine. I, that's where I'm at. And I probably should have put a spoiler alert at the very beginning, but go ahead, spoil spoil away. Uh, the the trouble is, you know, like he, he does this out of love. You know, it it seems like such a romantic thing, right? Which it totally does fit with that sense of longing. Like he Mm -hmm. is in love with Nicholas and both of them being vampires means they can be immortal lovers. Like I can't think of, you know, a more romantic notion than that. Uh Um, It does not work out. Uh, Nick, the vampirism drives Nicholas insane. He ends up rejecting Lestat and just utterly losing his mind and ends up dying. So there's a whole tragic end to the story. All right. (laughs) I feel like I'm chomping at the bit because I I, that's like where I'm at the story, but it's already already sort of indicated that like this isn't going to go well. Uh, Yeah. Even like his mother's like, like, uh, what are you doing, dude? Like, don't make my vampire. Um, and it's why I'm thinking I'm sort of gravitating more and more maybe towards a Leo rising because, uh, he does like to be in the spotlight, blah, 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 blah. But, uh, that would make Saturn the ruler of the seventh. And in this context, at least, uh, the Saturn in Pisces describes the figure of Nicholas, like pretty well, like he's a violinist. Yeah, that is fitting. Um, who like adopted by like started playing the violin like a little too late so he's like he's not going to be a world famous violinist but he's like really good but he's a really unhappy dude who's just like you know in all the conversations the stats like you know you just go after what you want right that's all you can do is just go after it and he does and he succeeds and nicholas is like like that's you know that's you dude i don't know how you do that that's great but i'm i'm too dark man like i'm just 
I I don't think you understand oh, you know, how heavy it is for me. Or- and that's that's also Louis. So when you know I, I gave the yeah, introduction where I was essentially introducing, it falls in love with the saddest people. Yeah. So so uh, interview with the vampire Beautiful, tells tells the story of Louis, mm-hmm. uh, who's you know the the young grieving man I described in the intro. And uh, Lestat pounces on him and turns him into, well, he, he offers him the choice. You know, you can die here or you can try out a new life as a vampire. And Louis agrees. And so, you know, they become bound together and uh, Lestat loves him. They are lovers. Um, there's a sort of very twisted plot line in which you know Lestat wants to keep them together and so he transforms this little girl into mm-hmm. a vampire who Louis is attached to so that he will have to stay with Lestat because now they have to raise this little vampire girl together yep. um just very messed up family dynamic there but yeah Louis is just the most depressing character and it's it's mm-hmm. funny in in interview with the vampire the movie uh Tom Cruise plays Lestat and Brad Pitt plays Louis and Brad Pitt actually complained about having to take that role because he <laughs> felt like he was he was getting you know the the sort of weak character like Lestat is so charismatic yeah. and like fun and um he's like powerful and interesting and has all this personality mm-hmm. and he's just Lestat is totally at peace with being a vampire in interview with the vampire at least that is how he's portrayed mm-hmm. Um, whereas Louis has a really hard time adjusting to vampirism and, uh, he feels this moral conflict over having to kill people to survive. And for a long time, he literally survives on like rats and, you know, creatures that he can find on the streets because he's too ashamed to kill people. And he mostly, he spends most of the movie just like utterly addicted to his own shame and guilt and regret mm-hmm. um so he is a bit of a sad sack and yeah maybe there's it's funny that when Saturn i first totally rules the seventh house i'm when i <laughs> so so in terms of listad's birth time when i first cast the chart mm-hmm. it was a beautiful coincidence that um i'm using solar fire to cast charts mm-hmm. and I didn't specify a birth time because I didn't have one. And so it just input the time that I cast the chart automatically. And it just so happened that the moment I first cast the stats chart with my software, Leo was rising. Mm. And so, uh, or at least it would be at that time, not like literally in, you know, my little town in Ontario, but if it was the equivalent time in France in 1760 or whatever, Leo would have been rising. So (laughs) And I was like, that it does like that sometimes. really, I mean, it, it would make a lot of sense, especially from a sort of pop astrology point of view where, you know, Leo is the bombastic, uh, you know, performer that is very charismatic and charming and draws attention to itself. And that is, you know, Lestat's a literal rock star, mm-hmm. cannot get enough attention, cannot stand being alone. Um, and it's literally what like brings him out. Uh, it's why he leaves his home to begin with uh, is to go to Paris to be an actor. Be an actor, and then when he's uh, at the beginning of the book, he's like in hiber. He's hibernating for like fifty years or for a while after probably after Louis 
burnt the shit out of him. Um, he's he's recovering this right is underground. His, it, it's so another another thing that might be relevant to you know the discussion here about whether or not Saturn rules his seventh house is that uh, many of his affairs have very tragic moments. So Nicholas, of course, you know, dies as a result of his vampiric insanity. Louis, the, the little girl that Lestat turns into a vampire and that they adopt Mm -hmm. uh, gets tired. uh, Lestat. Or yeah, it gets, yeah, yeah, she's, she's stuck in this body, but she's aging, which is a really interesting sort of there's a lot of a lot of thematic exploration you can do with a character Mm -hmm. like that um so she's you know like well into middle age and still in the body of like an eight-year-old girl and is understandably very frustrated by the circumstance and is resentful towards Lestat for turning her into this creature so she finds a way to kill him or at least they think Mm -hmm. and then he ends up tracking him down and Louis lights him on fire so he has one lover die tragically mm-hmm. and he has another lover literally light him on fire so <laughs> he doesn't have a great track record with significant others it seems I mean, it starts great and they maybe. do tend to be very sad and have that yeah. sort of sorrowful longing about them which does sort of fit saturn and pisces when if you were to make it a leo rising that would put saturn in the eighth house and like the troubles right they're like sort of caught um they sort of come from being sort of thrust into uh to being and to becoming vampires he turns you know his sad the men that he falls in love with right they're these sad tragic figures and he turns them into vampires and sort of forces well he gave technically he gave louis the choice right um yeah but sort of thrusting them into this like eighth house kind of scenario maybe of being a vampire oh, yeah. uh and it doesn't necessarily go super great I, I think that something about mars conjunct pluto no less um squaring that saturn that's sort of like mars is like dude this is fun let's do it now let's let's be vampires we'll live forever like we, we you know we can do whatever we want that would put mars in the fifth house too so it's like we are just gonna have a really great time that would um, be fitting. He has a really messed up idea of what is a good time. There's a, a great scene in the movie where he's literally dancing with a corpse. Does he mm. think like a, a corpse that has died of the plague? <laughs> yeah. He just thinks it's hilarious. Louis is <laughs> yeah. sulking as he always is. Yeah. And this is Lestat's way of trying to cheer him up. Yeah. Is it, you end up getting both sides. Like the planets end up like playing both sides of the story to some degree. Because like you get the figure of the louis and maybe nicholas being saturn and, and pisces and the story plays out in a very saturn and pisces way trying to make something last forever is like sort of beautiful yeah almost like embalming it in a way that yeah it, it's like doomed to tragedy it's just part of what makes it beautiful in a sense is the the failure of it or the doomed nature of it well, I think, I mean, vampire <clears throat> stories, you know, really get into the nature of time and mortality, mm. which are both really relevant to Saturn and made me think that Saturn must be a major player in Lestat's chart. Yeah. Um, the, like, Saturn is the lord of time and also represents the laws of nature and vampires sort of defy the laws of nature and live for an unnaturally long time. They mm. sort of hacked time. 
Um, but there's also like Saturn represents things that are very old and very ancient and vampires can, you know, nothing bad happens. Like they're, they are able to die, but if nothing happens to them, they can just carry on indefinitely. So you have vampires who are thousands of years old, um, which does carry that, like that ancient feeling of Saturn of having collected all of these experiences and watched all of these ages rise and yeah. fall. And like, how would that affect your perspective on life? Cause you're getting a Saturn's eye view mm-hmm. of the world when you are potentially immortal. Um, but then like, you know, with Mars squaring Saturn in his chart, there is that theme of breaking those laws of yeah. nature and the tragedy that results because of his recklessness, right? Like Mars is recklessness. Saturn is like, mm-hmm. these are just nature's laws. Like, people are not actually meant to live forever they're not meant to stay in a young body for all eternity yeah um and and pisces is that longing like i want that beautiful thing to last for all eternity and it's like that's just not how things work and if you try to force things to be that way Mm -hmm. you are going to uh there are going to be destructive consequences yeah i also think of like part of what makes mortality so beautiful or what makes you know youth so beautiful is that it is so brief like that's part of what makes it treasured it's Mm -hmm. part of why we value it and to try to stretch life out indefinitely is actually ultimately destroying the very beauty that you seek to preserve yeah and that's like uh the sun and moon probably in the second decan of scorpio and scorpio is it's kind of about that hunger and lust you know that mm-hmm. like that and like the second decan it's like a little more of like a bottomless hunger or like a wanting to make it last forever just the ugh, like wanting all of it that sort of bottomless thirst it, it is maybe the most vampiric in, in a sense of the of the three decans in scorpio well, I've I've got I've got to just quote this directly. Uh-huh. So Kyle and I have been reading Thirty Six Faces by Austin Kopic, and of course, I looked at uh, Scorpio too mm-hmm. while I was analyzing Lestat's chart, and it is pretty on the nose. And the the second decan of Scorpio, so his sun is definitely in the second decan of Scorpio. Mm-hmm. Uh, his moon is very likely also in the second decan of Scorpio, um, and you know, at the very least, it's passing through there in that 24 hour period. Um, so on, on his birthday at some point, you know, it's in the second decan. Um, and that, that decan of Scorpio has a lot to do with relationships um, and the sort of yeah. patterns of uh, vulnerability and um, creativity yeah. and intimacy, as well as destruction um, that occur in relationships Um so Austin the mutual distillation, I believe. Yeah. And mutual destruction yeah. is a, is a theme like mutual destruction in relationships is a theme mm-hmm. that Austin gives for this decan, which seems very fitting for Lestat's love life in general. Yeah. Um, and he's, he's very motivated for companionship, whether that's lovers or not. Like he, he is sort of a loneliness is a central theme to his character. Um, he deeply desires uh, union with other people. Um, so the the book, 36 Decans, uh, gives a, a short delineation for each planet in each decan. 
And the de description for Moon in the second decan of Scorpio was too funny for me not to share. <laughs> I remember this one. At, like <laughs> in, I am going to quote verbatim from the book. The moon in this decan is desirous of intimate union, to take care of another, and to be taken care of in turn. The danger here is in the attempt to bring others into a mutual arrangement without their consent or knowledge, <laughs> as these natives are often possessed of intense emotional needs. It, it gets even better. They will struggle with vampiric tendencies. <laughs> Just perfectly on the nose. Yeah. For though they are not evil-hearted, their needs sometimes overwhelm their regard for others. They must invite, not coerce others to participate, for this is a face of mutuality. Literally <laughs> calling him out for being a vampire. And like... it's funny, too, because he, like, <laughs> thinks that he's doing it, too, with, like, Louis and even with Nicholas. Like, do you want it? Like now he that thinks he's giving them a choice, but <laughs> yeah. with Louis, it's like he've already attacked him. I mean, you if you die. like walked up to yeah. him with a business card, you would be mm -hmm. giving him a choice. But no, you drained him to the point of death and then claimed. Yeah. And it, and another sort of theme with him is that like he wasn't given a choice when he was attacked and, and changed. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I can't remember if this line repeats in the book. I he assume it no does. And when he was given, well, he was asked basically by his when he was being turned into a vampire oh he yeah was asked i get or not asked he was like you know tell me you want it basically and he's like i don't or i, I can't remember if it was he was asked directly but basically the vampire did it anyway okay so we've got some issues with consent going on here yeah that he's been on the receiving end of mm -hmm. and then he has a complicated issue with consent when it comes to the people he falls in love with as well because in in the movie he keeps repeating like when he goes to turn Louis, he says, I'm going to give you the choice that I never got. And he keeps kind of repeating this. It's like an ongoing motif in yeah. the film that he's obsessed with choice and the fact that like Louis <laughs> at least got a choice and he didn't. But like, I also feel like you can't, you can't suck all of someone's blood so that they can only choose between death and vampirism and then say that, oh yeah, you got a choice. It's all good. Like you, you agreed to this brand new life does seem like uh mars is ruling you know the the scorpio stuff right and it does seem yeah no offense to mars and sad right but there is a, a like <laughs> like to jump to like a conclusion almost just be like well yeah this fits the rules right this is you know this fits yeah. the moral code like i you know i asked them you know they had they had a choice right but sort of totally glossing over like all the details of that or <laughs> oh yeah where it's like Sagittarius involved. is kind of looking at the big picture and yeah. not really the fine print which is, you yeah know. you know just kind of gloss over the little details because you know it doesn't quite fit the, the big picture that we're trying to make here and you do have Mars square in that Saturn which if it's ruling Saturn's ruling the seventh you know you get a couple double indicators there uh, I, I do want to talk a bit about the, the Sagittarius planets because I oh, think yeah. they're interesting as well. And I want to talk um, about Jupiter too, but yeah, Sagittarius. Let's talk about a really, a really fun thing that Anne Rice does with um, the first two books of the Vampire Chronicles is interview with the vampires, essentially Louis story. It's yeah. telling this story from his point of view. And so you're getting Lestat from his point of view. And Lestat, as Louis describes him, is basically just like your the sort of um, what pop culture thinks a narcissist is mm -hmm. just like superficially charming, but ultimately very hollow and empty 
and just always using other people for his own needs. Um, so that's, that is the, the picture of Lestat that Louis paints for us. But then in the follow-up to that book, you have the vampire Lestat, and now you're having Lestat's story from his point of view. And Lestat tells a very different story. And one of the things he talks about is that uh, he only kills evildoers, um, that he was like, he, he sort of has a moral code about yeah. who he kills. So he, he does. doesn't really feel like he's evil. And I feel like that's very, this is very Mars and Sagittarius where there's a certain, I feel like Mars and Sagittarius because it's ruled by Jupiter. There's a sort of uh, nobility to it. You know, mm-hmm. like I am, Mars is destructive, but it's like, I am destroying with some sort of divine or moral purpose or mandate. Yeah. And then with, you know, Venus and Sagittarius, you also get desire being mixed up with questions of morality. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's very passionate and has very strong desires. And, you know, as uh, that beautiful description by Austin Kopic of Moon and Scorpio 2 talks about, you know, uh, their needs sometimes overwhelming their regard for others. Mm-hmm. That does happen to Lestat. But at heart, like, he still wants to do the right thing or believe that he's doing the right thing yeah in the book right um i've been listening to it because i like through the context of the chart so it's like oh okay like i can see how this shows up but uh, it's interesting especially with like the discussions with nicholas uh because nicholas is much more saturn and pisces in my mind like it's uh heavy sort of struggles with morality and stuff and like Lestat will kind of go there and then kind of be like, "Mm, yeah, but like, you know, the it's like the quick sort of simple moral solution to the moral dilemma um, is kind of where he tends to go with things. And uh, that is certainly the Mars and Sag approach, I would say. Uh, but Sagittarius right. also, it's, it's like the answer quickly, <laughs> quick and dirty moral, like, yeah. <laughs> like philosophizing. It's like, let's just get it done. Absolutely. Let's get this. Let's find the, uh, the, the, whatever the justification is we need for, for this. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and absolutely. I have it. <laughs> the justification we need. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing is like Sag is very good at coming up with a justification oh, yeah. for whatever it does. Yeah. And, you know, Jupiter might be a little more naturally suited to it. Uh, Mars will maybe be a little more slapdash, perhaps. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that is interesting because then you get Jupiter ruling the Sag stuff and Saturn rules the Jupiter stuff. And you kind of do get the story throughout the whole thing of like he's sort of learning or trying to learn. Um, like the Saturn stuff is the Saturn in Pisces is feeding everything else, essentially. But it's you know, sort of happening through trial and error and through this long cycle of, but ultimately kind of going back uh, to, I don't know, to kind of doing some of the same stuff over and over again, but it's like, he is slowly sort of learning. Granted, I haven't gotten that far. I'm only about halfway into the book, so I don't know how him being a rock star and stuff goes. It just, uh, it makes me think that that Saturn is in the eighth house and like learning through maybe, uh, mistakes um through maybe they're, they're hard won lessons but they're, they're also not always the easiest to make stick you know because they're like oh wait oh i missed that part of the lesson i gotta kind of retrace that one 
there's uh so the leo rising is definitely very compelling as an option for his chart but i was also looking at it with aquarius rising um because i just kept thinking saturn has got to be significant in this chart it would put jupiter on or at least within reach yeah. of his ascendant which fits his very larger than life personality um and his his you know sort of rock star qualities um but there's mm-hmm. because it's jupiter and aquarius there's sort of like a darkness or an edge to yeah. it and he you know he's like rebellious and literally a vampire so like i feel like that that kind of fits as his um he's he's charming and fashionable and graceful and you kind mm-hmm. of want to be around him but there's a rough edge to all of that um it would also put uh mm-hmm. potentially yeah. put venus that, yeah. that venus south node conjunction um or that mars pluto conjunction right on the midheaven um because it would give him a potentially give him a Sagittarius midheaven in the 11th house. And I just, I kept thinking, I feel like the 10th and 11th houses mm. must be significant in this chart because of the his obsession with publicity, um, him wanting to have a relationship with the public and very successfully cultivating a relationship with the public. Um, so his, his sun moon conjunction would be in the 10th house. And I, I was like, I feel like the sun in this chart is very visible in some way whether he's a Leo rising or he has the sun in the first or the 10th house like that ironic for a vampire that can't go out in sunlight, but (laughs) that I feel like the sun has got to be really visible in his chart somewhere. And up in the 10th is good for a rock star. Um, But then his like this theme of loneliness and desire for companionship um, that is, that recurs in his story and characterization feels like, someone with a very complicated 11th house um and having like the south node pluto and mars are all symbols of the taboo and transgression and secrets and um having them right on his midheaven would be kind of fitting because he has this public facing role and part of his public facing role is that he is mm. like revealing yeah. vampire secrets to mortals through his public activities, which feels very much like the archetypes of those symbols of the South node, Pluto and Mars. Um, what would they be doing on stage in the public sphere would probably be, you know, bringing up dark secrets, causing a bunch of controversy. His music literally raises Mm. the vampire queen, like wakes her up. So you get very like Pluto South node, like apocalyptic evil underworld, powerful being coming up to completely take over the world and destroy life Mm -hmm. as we know it because Mm. of his public facing activities in the 11th house. (laughs) You think you'd be able to, I know. Yeah, Aquarius and I mean, Rising well, and Leo Rising too, are both um, very compelling. Because it's like that middle, that Mercury-ruled Deccan of Aquarius, which is like, like the navigating between worlds, sort of. Like never really belonging to any particular oh, yeah. world, but sort of being, uh, associating with yes. and like being popular in different groups, but like never actually sticking around. Actually, like He was actually became really popular... Um, 
his first uh, go at acting, uh, everybody loved him. He was great. But that's actually how he became a vampire was he was selected. He was Ganymeded by a vampire. He was taken away and turned in, into a vampire. Oh, shoot. Right. Yeah, he was uh, the vampire fell in love with him on uh, by seeing him on the stage. Something special about that. That was that guy and whisked him away. Very, very Ganymede. I don't know. You could be right about this Aquarius rising. So God, how can it just go either way? It shouldn't be like that. Yeah, <laughs> you should be able to tell the difference it, between Aquarius and Leo, right? Uh. <laughs> it shouldn't be like that. No, all all opposite signs yeah. are the same at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah. So like half the time, I'm pretty sure I have some yeah. Libra. And half the time I'm like, no, it's an Aries. And then I'm like, eh, I'm not so thing sure. though is if you it's somewhere on that spectrum rising, of those two maybe, archetypes. You get the sun. You could put like the sun and Scorpio right on the IC, which almost has like the midnight sun quality, which Oh yes. I don't know, like it's visible in a sense because it's angular, but it's also like the peak of midnight, you know, and it's um, Yes. The darkest yeah. part of the day where the and that's sort of like the the point of resurrection. Like I always mm-hmm. think that the sun in the fourth house really has I mean anything in the fourth house, but especially the sun has that theme of rebirth mm-hmm. where it's like you have passed through the underworld and are now yeah. ready to reemerge as something new. And like having a night chart for a vampire just it makes a it lot does, of sense. Yeah. It's very fitting. And you also get like the with the moon which means the complicated relationship with the mother like i don't know the, it turns the mother into a vampire which like it's applying to the sun there's something about saturn and pisces ruling the descendant that just uh, it seems so much like like louis and and nicholas it's he just loves he sad <laughs> tragic figures yeah he's in love with them um oh, man Saturn. I mean, as as oh. someone with Saturn ruling my descendant and in my seventh <laughs> house, oh, uh, yeah. I've def I've definitely been down that road a few times. I've learned from it, um, but yeah, that <laughs> like I've I have been very much a sucker for tragic figures in in my romantic past. I think the luminary ruled ascendants they all want to bring, they want to save. <laughs> oh, we <laughs> want to be the light. We yeah, you want to bring the light. Yeah, the light light. I'm gonna bring my light to you. I'll, I'll save oh. you. I can fix you. Yeah, I was brutal <laughs> for that. <laughs> yeah. It helps having Saturn and Capricorn, which is like, uh, okay. Yeah. I, the it Saturn will tell you, like, no, <laughs> like this is yeah, the like, limit. This is how much of your help that I need, and there's what I don't need. Yeah, <laughs> we keep you going yeah, too far with that. I I ended up just. The, the resolution to the seventh house for me was just to find a Capricorn rising, <laughs> not a tragic figure in any way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, makes sense. Yeah. The, the Saturn qualities manifest in a totally mm-hmm. different way and it works out well. Yeah. But, so thankfully, I, I think I think my phase of trying to be the light in some tragic character's <laughs> darkness has come to an end. Yeah. <laughs> I can be your hero, baby. Oh my god. I don't think it, it ever really ended for Lestat. <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. Ah, uh, it's a mystery. This chart though, I, I mean Damien's was pretty like pretty legit, pretty wow, but Lestat's is yeah, uh, it's 
I think it's, I don't know, maybe that's just a much more emotionally compelling story too. Uh, yeah, he's a more complex character. Yeah, like all fire and water, much more dramatic. Oh yeah, even if you just look at, you sort of zoom out and just look at the elements, you get yeah. the, most, the most dramatic. And like, I don't know. It's hard to rank which is the most dramatic fire sign, but Sagittarius can really, <laughs> really give it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Don't <laughs> underestimate <laughs> it's a, it's the a ability of Sagittarius to bring the boldness, uh, the excitement, and the drama. Yeah. Uh, I think there was something I wanted to say about Venus on the South Node escaping me because we've been recording for a while now, and I'm it's way past your bedtime. I'm sorry. And being kept up late into the night during spooky season. I know. We're almost at the witching hour talking about vampires. You're supposed so. to be sleeping safely through this. Well, well, the moon in Scorpio rules my chart. So the day <laughs> that I am safely sleeping through anything spooky will <laughs> be a strange day for me. Yeah. yeah. It's probably a good stopping point. Maybe. Yeah, <laughs> I'm good. I, I'm good very curious. To hear what you have to say about the Venus South Node conjunction, but I was just thinking about like the dematerializing of um, it's. I mean, it's very. I don't know. I I that honestly was making me think of like the Dancing with the Dead Body thing a little bit. The <laughs> 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 Mars and Sag too. I don't know. There's a lot of like Mars conjunct Pluto and Sag Venus with the South Node and Sag. There's a lot of like just playing and having fun with the dead. Uh, a little bit yeah um, well, venus is you know what brings us pleasure and makes us happy to be alive and and it's conjunct the south node which is all about death and elimination and destruction and overturning of old structures like there's a real rebelliousness to the south node as well which mm-hmm. fits for the the brat prince who cannot be constrained yeah he's, he's a very chaotic sort of character the south node is a very chaotic archetype I have Venus there. It's like you literally desire the chaos. Well, like Venus, almost like maybe punk rock element to it a little bit, which, yeah, like very rebellious, but also like he's, you know, he's all about like his sex appeal, right? He very like in descriptive of like, um, like how luscious, you know, a, a person's features are like just very into the beauty. Yeah. And like the South Node quality is, I don't know. It's like uh, you get a little bit of that, like wanting to make spiritualizing the beauty, basically. Like it's 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 like sensual experiences for him are very much like oh, that's like what uplifts. That is what like it is. It is a spiritual experience. Like the even like the experience of being a vampire to him is like very much like uh, to experience all the sensual delights of the world but it also being like uh, i don't know it's it's, it's it, it bears it has spikes right his teeth that he he, he, he drinks people's blood like yeah. it's like the symbolism is is well established throughout the chart but like we, we get a maybe an added an added layer there you know yeah of the enjoys the beauty between... watching people die like you know finds ways to appreciate that the the pleasure mm. uh pleasure being linked to death and disintegration yeah and the the dissolution of the old mm-hmm. um 
Yeah, it's it. I mean, everything in this chart really spells vampire. Yeah, either uh, Anne Rice is a very talented astrologer, or there's something to this. I feel like we're establishing a pattern here with our. It's just real. (laughs) This is real. It's so real that it's even real for fake people. Well, and that begs the question: How fake are they? Well, that's the thing. Is in some ways they I have think, a life too. Yeah, yeah, they're in some ways more real than you and I, because more people know about them. Yep. I hurt my own feelings. Um, Lestat is not even a real person, and he is more popular than me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's the thing. Is like, I mean, once something lives in enough people's imagination, that is that not real? I I think it is real. I think. That's I mean, what I take an animus view. Yeah. You're creating something living. I mean, that's like the whole work of making talismans in astrology yeah. is insoling an object, you know, and you're mm-hmm. you're picking a time for it to be born that will be favorable for waking up the spirit in that object or placing a spirit in that object, whichever way you look at it. Yeah. Sort of the work of the artist is you are breathing that breath of life into new creations and bringing them into the world. Yeah. I mean, I don't. We we had had this conversation about Aries a while back, not on the show, but um, you know there's that that uh, <clears throat> pursuit of immortality, right? I feel like the artist's way of achieving immortality is through the art that they create. And I know for myself, like you know, if I could create something um, when I did art, I remember being feeling very strongly about you know wanting to pursue art because that feeling of like yeah, if I can make something beautiful enough for it to to not just outlive me but like to become bigger than me right to to become bigger than than you like the thing you create uh which is not like you just created it you wove it out of your imagination but you made something that was even bigger than yourself that's like an accomplishment that's an achievement in my mind um now i appreciate much more mundane achievements as well. But certainly as a teenager, that was like the only way I could ever measure success was <laughs> creating something uh, on that scale, which Anne Rice, I would say did. And I guess if you create something on that scale big enough, uh, then it has a chart maybe. Or I guess maybe everything has a chart. I don't know. Everything has a chart. <laughs> I mean, technically everything does have a chart. If it is... Uh, bound by space and time yeah. has the chart. Yeah, some are more descriptive than others, I suppose. But um, yeah, we should probably call it a night here. Uh, anything you have going on, Tristan, that you want to share with the, the world? Not particularly. Anything uh, you want to immortalize on the, on the <laughs> airwaves? <laughs> Anything I want to immortalize on the airwaves. Yeah. Not really. I'll I'll put a link to my Instagram in the show notes in case people want to follow me there. Yeah. Um, I haven't been posting a ton of stuff directly related to astrology, but I think I've been doing a little more art and I've been doing more ritual. And I think I'm probably going to bring astrology into those things a bit more. So people are curious about astrology related art. Some of that might show up on my Instagram from time to time. Well, whether you do incorporate astrology or not, like people should definitely follow it because, dude, your images are like 
I, I don't know how you create these like set pieces. Like they're they're beautiful. They look amazing. Thank uh, you. And the, like the altars that you've made and like the I mean your notebook. Is that your handwriting? Yes. Handwriting's phenomenal. Thank like, you. Like it's it you like literally, I don't know, you could be you need to be doing something with it or I don't know. <laughs> doing no, something for me. My handwriting is not, so atrocious. Not the capitalist pressure. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't need to be, but you could. And it'll probably just come to you if you just do it. Uh, I think that's what I got to do. I got to just yeah. do it. So jump, jump on Instagram, yes. everyone, and encourage me to keep making stuff. And I yes. can make astrology stuff because it's fun. Yes. Share Tristan's stuff too, you know, and share this show with people. Yeah. Um, tell everyone about it because Kyle is awesome and an amazing <laughs> astrologer. And you don't want to miss out on any of his insights. Uh, some of them you could probably miss, but... <laughs> there's there's gems in there i think i like to think so at least um but speaking of which I, yeah i well uh it's for me you can as always book a reading with me uh through my website astrology jesus kyle astrologer.com um i also recently published a uh collection of sun sign delineations um sort of based on the signs like disposition towards leo so Basically, they're sun sign delineations, but they're pretty good. I'm pretty proud of them. So I, I love them. Thank I think you. I think they're fantastic, and I think that the the system that you used of comparing them all to Leo as the home base of the sun was really cool, and ended up being like really accurate. I know it was weird. Yeah, very cool delineation technique. They almost wrote themselves in a lot of ways, but um, yeah. Well, happy Halloween. Uh, to everyone and thanks so much for joining me on the show Tristan it's always wonderful to have you thank you for having me happy Halloween happy Samhain (laughs) yay all right well yeah happy Halloween everyone if you have a question you'd like to hear answered on astrology hotline please email astrologyhotlinepod at gmail.com (laughs) 